want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's coming flat, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sides TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, we just got done with American Thanksgiving. How was not Thanksgiving up in Canada? Uh, not Thanksgiving was fine, although uh, as the result of your crummy American Thanksgiving, we had virtually no television this week, which is going to be confusing to everyone when we still have this long a podcast, however long it ends up being. Yeah, well, helping us with that, of course, is our segment at the end of the podcast. Uh, we talked with Dr. Paul Booth, um, one of the professors at DePaul, about fans and fandom in television, because, of course, it's time for another Informed Opinions, this being an episode that ends in zero, as the as our buddies over at Battleship Potentially like to say. Um, so that's coming at the end of the podcast. Great talking with them. That was so fun. Yeah. Uh, we, so we talk with some about depictions. We talk some about theory and television in relationships relationships with fans in general but that was a blast and that'll be coming at the end of the podcast it sounds super boring but it really wasn't it was really fun <laughs> like you said there's not a lot of uh tv this week there wasn't a lot of tv so normally that would mean i would have caught up with like i would have finished my mad fat my mad fat diary i would have caught up with adventure time um i would have at least watched the toy story thing uh but i was too busy getting my butt kicked by the nutcracker um, so, and of course, cooking Thanksgiving. So, so I didn't actually catch up with anything this week. So, hold on. When you say cooking Thanksgiving, what, what were your exact duties? Um, well, I had a lot of help, which was very, you know, very much appreciated. Because again, the nutcracker is really hard and really long. Um, so it's, I had to learn that last week, uh, but I made the turkey, I made the, uh, stuffing, I made the cranberries, I, uh, what else did we do? Um, I made the mashed potatoes. Stovetop stuffing or no. inside stuffing? No, 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 no. Stovetop stuffing. I, I mean, sorry, stuffing on the side, not like pre-made. Yeah, I thought you meant pre-made. I, I went to a no. Stover's or Stover's. Oh God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no. Delicious, delicious, um, bread uh dressing so on the side not inside the bird because i'm not gonna cook a delicious leek and apple and cranberry and sausage stuffing on with homemade bread and then stick it inside of a turkey to get all grody um i'm sure there are many people who feel strongly about that and say it's delicious but it feels wrong to me so that we had dressing um i'm a big fan of dressing uh Yes, it was. And then my my sister in law made a a delightful pumpkin soup, and uh, we had uh, lots of people helping out in the kitchen as well. So it was nowhere near as stressful as it could have been. Certainly, uh, do you have any thoughts on on dressing versus stuffing? Uh, I don't stuff. It's dangerous. And I don't even care about the danger part. I live dangerously, but <laughs> it's I I prefer to know. Uh, I prefer to have more control over my turkey situation, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I like to have a really small turkey and only cook for a few people 
and have that be a predictable situation and cook it well. Like how how big a turkey were you talking? Well, normally I like to do small. And again, this this week in Kate's cooking corner, uh, normally I like to do uh, some, basically as small a, a bird as I can convince uh, the family to accept. Uh, so like a 12 pound would is nice. Um, uh, but this, this year, the smallest we could get was 16 and we had a bunch of leftover and my probe thermometer died that day. Oh, so no. I was, it was, a, it was a stressful, unfortunate situation. You were, you were flying blind. I was. And the turkey ended up overcooked. It was not, it was not Alton Brown's fault because I, I used the Good Eats turkey. One of these days, someone will come on to the podcast to do a DVD shelf about Good Eats, and I will just rave forever because I love that show. Um, the It was not uh, the recipe's fault. It was my fault for not having checked that the probe thermometer was fully functional before I went to stick it in. Wait a second. Is there anything? I, I, we, don't, we shouldn't go on about this too long, but I am curious. Uh, what is what is uh is there anything distinctive about the Alton Brown turkey or just it's just a really good basic turkey recipe? Well, first of all, you brine the turkey overnight, so that's I did that. Yeah. Boosh. Yep. And then uh, you instead of cooking the turkey till it's done, until it's at the appropriate temperature, um, and then then kicking up the heat to get the like the uh, golden brown, mm-hmm. uh, and thereby overcooking it because you've cooked it till it was done and then cooked it more to get it golden right. brown. You do that first. So you do the gold you do the high temperature golden brown first and then you lower it. I did slow. that too. <laughs> I totally did that. Nice. And then of course he Boosh. the he has aromatics inside instead of um in, instead of a stuffing and I gotta say, uh the I may have overcooked the turkey, but I made the best gravy I have ever made in my entire life. I will never make gravy that good again. Um, so at least Dude, there was that. We totally used the exact same turkey recipe. I swear to God, because I had aromatics inside the cavity. Yep. Well, I'm sorry. I'll, here's what I'm saying. Eventually, uh, in you know, one of our our critic friends will be like, "Let's talk about good eats," and I will just go on for days about several of these fabulous right. Alton Brown recipes, uh, and we can compare notes then. But we probably right. should move we, on. We should stop. We spent six minutes on turkey. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> Uh, well, that's, you know, that's what a lot of my week has been. We talked with you guys this week uh, somewhat. And again, like I said, I've been not very around, so I didn't talk with a lot of you guys, unfortunately. Um, Damien says, just listen to the podcast. Wow. Angry Kate is just as formidable as Booming Jack on Hannibal. Damn you, Cora. And yes, I did hulk out a little bit about uh, Cora. There's a lot of profanity last week. Um, and that That is also a in-joke for the This Is Our Design podcast. We should mention, Simon, that you were on This Is Our Design for our most recent episode to talk about season uh, one, episode 12. And that came out last week, I want to say? Uh, I, I I think so. I, it's funny because I, I was, I recorded, I was the first thing I recorded after I got out of the woods. And I was just thrown into the morass of this is our design. I didn't really know what to expect, and I was clearly completely unprepared for the <laughs> level of nerdiness that you guys bring to Hannibal. Yeah. So well done. There's a lot of there's a lot of nerdiness. Um, there is still the the season one finale coming uh, at some point. 
but yes, the, it's been it's been fun finishing up season one. Uh, for this is our Zion. You guys can of course find that in, this, in your Televerse feed. Uh, Carl put together uh, an image for this last episode and was tweeting out uh, promoting the show on Twitter. So thank you very much, Carl. Greatly appreciated. We always we do get some of those every week, and we always appreciate it. So this week that was Carl. Um, Brian says you absolutely must watch the first two episodes of the game due to its preternatural British stuffiness. Uh, which I think is pretty entertaining. Uh, I have not watched any of it yet. Uh, have you caught any this week? No. My next project is The Honorable Woman, now that I've finished uh, Penny Dreadful, which actually I should say a few words about this week. Yeah, we'll get there in, in, in genre. I look forward to your thoughts, and also for The Honorable Woman as well. Um, Brian also says, My wife really likes State of Affairs. Why does God hate me? Um, I don't. I, that's a pretty specific punishment. I wonder, I mean, do we believe in a karmic god in this case? I mean, has, is there anything you subjected your wife to that maybe you haven't thought about? Yeah, uh. that's what first came to mind for me. So you'll have to report back, Brian, and let us know like what, how this is your penance. Is this like karma for like years of punishment from 24 or something? Yeah, again, you'll have to report back. Mario says um, about American Horror Story, I say um, they should dump Jessica Lang so they can create a new or different kind of story without it being centered on her. Can they even do that? Um, I believe, hasn't Jessica Lang um, said that this is going to be her last season of American Horror Story? Yeah, but she also said that last season. Ah, touche. <laughs> so, at least that's what I remember. Uh, but yeah, she keeps talking about retiring and not doing that anymore. And yeah, and also, like, if I, from what I recall correctly, uh, Asylum was not nearly as Jessica Lang centric uh, as these episodes have been. I mean, it was definitely. She definitely she was definitely a major presence, but not to the degree that she has been this season and last season. Hmm. Yeah, and I still haven't uh, caught up with Asylum, and I, I haven't gone back to watching Freak Show. So who knows if I'm going to even finish, uh, you know, see most of her her work on the show. But I do tend to enjoy her, um, even if I have issues with the show in general. But uh, yeah, I mean, having if Ryan Murphy is feeling like he needs to center everything around her. That could be limiting, um, but I think it has more to do with other issues than uh, a particular actor. Um, the show has become very tied to her, though, in public awareness, just because of the critical praise and you know the awards nominations and stuff. I think what we can all agree on is that the show needs to break out of its formula, and if, if jettisoning some elements of its cast will help with that, then I'm all for it. Yeah, and we'll have to, you know, wait till this season wraps up and we start getting rumblings about next season. But uh, but for now, thank you all for, for chiming in. And we got a new like on Facebook, so thank you. I think that was Kathy. Um, and it would be great if we could build a community on Facebook because I, I post the episodes, but we don't really get any feedback or response there. Um, we would love to talk with you guys. I, let me, let me I would love to talk with you guys about the TV <laughs> you're watching on, on Facebook. I shouldn't speak for you, Simon. I don't know how much of a Facebook person you are, but um, feel free to post away on, on the, the Televerse Facebook page. We would love to, to you know interact with you guys there. Um, but now we will uh, you know cut short. I shouldn't say cut short. Now we will pause this rambling introduction uh, and start our, our Week in TV. Because as you say, Simon, there's so many fewer shows on this week. Um, that we're going to be talking about, we're going to just break it into two segments instead of three or four this week. So we'll uh, take a break now and come back with our week in reality and comedy. Falling down, falling down, falling down, down like a home now in the sky. Falling down, falling down, falling down, down like single tear we cry. A truer friend there was none. And, and Prisma was his name. name. 
an artisan of pickling, and now just one remains, and now just one. This week in reality and comedy, I'm going to speak quickly about The Amazing Race. You're taking my tan off. I think that was the name of the episode. And then we'll go into comedy first. Simon, you're going to catch up a little bit with Benched Shark, actually, and getting on the seventh annual Christmas card competition. We'll both talk a little Bob's Burgers, Best Burger, and Adventure Times, uh, three episodes. Of course, they had four episodes this week, but we already talked about the first one last week uh, on last week's podcast. So this week we'll be talking about Is That You?, Jake the Brick and Dentist. So first up is The Amazing Race. And I wanted to mention um, mention it this week because – so I, I know you haven't been following this, Simon, but one of the teams is uh, Bethany uh, the Soul Surfer and her right. husband Adam. And they've been, they've been great on the show. I believe – maybe they're engaged. Maybe they're newlyweds. It's one, of, one or the other. Um, they've been a lot of fun. I know it's been a while for you since you watched um, – uh, amazing race but you're familiar with the flash forward or with the f- uh fast forwards right yes yes this week with them still in the competition the fast forward was surfing uh huh you had to surf for two minutes on one of those like infinite wave pool things yeah you had to stand up for two minutes both both people on the team had to do it right so, yeah, I know she lost an arm, but that's still really unfair that's, to everyone else. That is super unfair. That's ridiculous. I mean, and yes, obviously, when they're designing the challenges, they can't necessarily know who's still going to be in the race at which point of the season. But that is absurd. Imagine if they had a bike messenger challenge uh, for a fast forward that lets you skip everything else that round. I mean, come on. Actually, it would be interesting if after casting, they designed a, a series of fast forwards, each one specifically designed to advantage one to, to advantage one team, and then see how they line up. I, I do want to see the pro wrestling challenge that is going to help the wrestlers who are s- still in it. We have the food scientists, the wrestlers, the surfers, and the dentists. At this point, I really hope the cyclists will come back for an all-star season. They are one of my favorite teams in quite a while. I really liked their um, their attitude and their, their their interest in the cultures of each place. Like, you're not just sitting around all night in the airport, but, you know, trying to actually see some of the culture of where they were. And uh, also just it's been an entertaining but supportive bunch in general this season so i'm hoping to see them come back it was a hard way to go out but you know you got to try if you're them you got to try so they at least they went out trying um so i just wanted to you know tip my hat to the cyclists and say wtf the amazing race not cool and with that we'll move on to the comedies of you caught up this week with benched i wanted to check in on benched because uh it's you know we, we already talked about it before it's got an amazing cast it's got a fun premise uh, you know, it's co-created by Michaela Watkins. It's got all kinds of connections to stuff we like. And I, I think in those first two episodes, we caught a glimpse of a show that was fun, uh, but very formulaic. And uh, we we're curious to see if it could overcome that. 
and I'm not sure that it has, uh, but I will say that I did have a lot of fun with, with it this week. It's as soon as the episode starts within that first three minutes, you know, every plot beat of this episode, every single one of them. And that should be a way bigger problem than it is. And the fact that it isn't, uh, I think is a good sign. It is a good sign for the show. If they can get, if they can get past some of these stereotypical sitcom-y schlocky plot beats and do something uh, even remotely original with these characters and actors, I think it could be an amazing show. As it is, it's it's uh, it's not a good show. It's like an objectively not good show in, in a strange way. That doesn't make any sense either. But like, if you just look at it based on its its teleplay, even if you if you were to strip out the ad lib jokes, it's it's a really hacky show. But the actors make it really charming, and uh, I want so badly for it to get over the schlockiness because uh, there's just so much untapped potential here. And, uh, I mean, I was just grinning from ear to ear while watching this entire episode while also knowing full well exactly what was going to happen at every moment, which was a very strange sensation for me because usually that would just enrage me. Uh, so, yeah, Benst, I want to like you, and I do, but I didn't want to like you, and you made me like you, and it made me angry. <laughs> Does that make any sense? I'm feeling very... Th th there's going to be a theme this week of shows confusing me. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Is that going to continue with uh, getting on the seventh annual Christmas card competition? Oh, do I have to do that now? Again, I, I haven't had a chance to catch up with uh, the, the show yet, but I do love that title. <sighs> I sp you'll like it even more when you see the episode and you realize what it's in reference to. Uh, I think I tried to explain before that this is a really strange show, and now it's an even stranger one. Uh, this episode features a fantastic... Uh, mostly dramatic, but also very funny guest performance uh, by Carrie Preston as a as a woman who is dying of cancer. She's unrecognizable when you initially see her, and then when she starts talking, you're like, oh shit, it's Carrie Preston. Um, she's amazing, and her scenes are touching and funny in all the right ways. Um, there are other scenes that feature... Uh, th this show has a strange obsession with slapstick, and uh, especially injury-related slapstick that comes out of left field especially coming off of those Carrie Preston scenes there's there's a particular uh scene involving a catheter tube which <laughs> oh my god anyway uh and it also likes fart jokes it's, it's okay <laughs> yes exactly it likes all of those things and it also likes sort of uh these these small human character beats uh, that sort of come out of nowhere and are allowed to be taken seriously. And it also sometimes to really, uh, it sometimes likes to really overtly make fun of its characters. Like it, it likes to do all of these things uh, to varying degrees in the space of half an hour. And it's extremely confusing, but it's never boring. I will say that. And I feel like I've now only seen, I think, three episodes of the show. And I feel like I need to see more of it to see if tonally it ever starts making sense. But I, I, I will say that there are, some aspects of this episode that are abs that are almost stunning and other parts that are uh, almost head-smackingly strange and not necessarily in a good way. Uh, so getting on, uh, I'm not really sure what you're up to, and I'm not sure if I like it, but sometimes I really like it. But other times I don't really like it. You see what I mean about confusing? <laughs> I sound like an idiot right now. <laughs> well, uh, I think uh, to tie to our next episode, Bob's Burgers, Best Burger, that oh, is, is certainly... Way easier how 
how uh, Bob was feeling. I, I forget the name of the announcer. I like that they brought him back here and just ha- gave him just just a seemingly endless list of not particularly effective heckles uh, for Bob uh, that were got more delightful as the episode went on, at least for me. What did you think of this episode? Uh, I thought it was fun. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've seen, like, I would say first class Bob's episode. Uh, but this was uh, a, a solid one. Any th- any episode that features Gene having to negotiate a, a hot fudge car wash uh, and its attendant temptations, I would say, is going to be a good one. Uh, did did you? By the way, did you take a second uh, of this episode to uh, really delve into the history of black garlic? Because that's fascinating. That was actually the best part of the episode for me. Mm, intriguing. No, I have not looked into black garlic. Um, though I, it does get, you know, come up on cooking shows every now and again, but no, I'm not familiar with it. You have to, it takes two weeks to produce. Well, that would be why it was only available at Fig Jam. That's right. That cutaway to the guy at Fig Jam was pretty fantastic. I gotta say, I like that that is part of the world now. I would love to see future adventures reference or, uh, tie in to the Belchers being banned from Fig Jam, um, and and also really you know it was a really fun uh, guest turn from Kamel. I'm assuming it was Kamel Nanjiani. That's the voice. You know, I, I think I re- feel like I, he's got one of the more recognizable voices in comedy right now. He has an extremely distinctive voice, and yeah. uh, I, I'm always frustrated watching Bob's because uh, they bring in so many uh, amazing guests, and then I have half a second to catch who they are and who they're playing, and I can never catch all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, while it may not be, I mean, this is not the OT or anything, but, uh, it was really, uh, one of, it was really enjoyable and I liked, you know, the, I liked focusing on Gene, him finding out that his name is a verb in their family, uh, was delightful. And, uh, it was, you know, again, it was a really strong kid centered episode. So I, I, I really had fun with this one. It sounds like I was a little bit more intrigued than you were. Uh, let's move on to Adventure Time, though, because we've got three episodes to talk about, and they're all great in their own way, uh, which, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, which one do you want to start with? Should we, let, let's start with Nanjiani, right? Prismo's back. Let's start with Nanjiani. I mean, uh, as an overall statement, I wonder if there was any sort of uh, rhyme or reason to making these four episodes be the ones. I mean, I assume that there's a certain production order and they're going to go with it. But I wonder if there was a reason they went with these particular four episodes uh, to have air over the space of five days, because they really refocus specifically on Finn and Jake, which is I know that uh, people have some people have had I don't care, but some people have had an issue this season with the fact that there's been so much focus on the tertiary characters and these sort of odd side quests, if you want to put them that way, and not a lot of time spent with Finn and Jake and all four of these episodes really center on those characters. Uh, what I also find interesting is that each of these episodes seems to really accentuate a very different aspect of the show. Everything's Jake, which we talked about last week, was sort of a, a side trip in, in this sort of like pathosy one-off type story uh, they've done before that doesn't really have a whole lot of connection to the wider mythology. Um, the first episode of this week, uh, help me out here. Is is that you? Is that you? Uh, very much the sort of... Um, uh, for lack of a better, for lack of a better term, head fucky uh, kind of episode with with an extreme dose of surreality. That's more about sort of how far can we push this one insane idea, uh, while also tying into the mythology in a really interesting way. The Finn Sword is awesome, uh, and that's just 
it's not often I geek out over stuff in TV, and that was totally worth geeking out over. Uh, the second episode this week is sort of a more wistful, uh, omnibus-type episode, and the, and the last one is just full-on, almost Adult Swim-level, just random and hilarious, uh, with a couple little extra notes in there. So I, I feel like each one of these uh, really does something gr uh, great and different that highlights... Uh, a di and the, and you know and just, and even between these four episodes, you don't get the full sp the, even close to the full scope of what the show can do, which is also cool. But to get back to your original question, uh, the first episode with Nanjiani, I think, is probably the best of the four. Uh, but none of these are bad. Yeah, they're they're all fun, like you say, in their own way. And uh, but we we got to talk a little bit about the the fin sword because that is creepy and disturbing. He's carrying around the destroyed alternate universe him. And he's like, sweet. <laughs> well, he I, killed I like... himself and he's <laughs> stoked that he got a sword out of it. Uh, you're disturbed by that? I don't know if we're meant to be disturbed by that or not. And th I, I like that they're letting that be ambiguous. I also like the image that we get in this last episode. Uh, the dentist. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Just dentist. Uh, dentist. Dentist. You go to go, dentist. Go, go no, go dentist. You have to go dentist. Um, <laughs> incidentally, I have to go dentist because I've had a thing since I was in the woods, and I don't worry. Kate's gonna give me a look, but I have an appointment. Yeah. All right. Okay. I have an appointment. Good. Good. Um. Anyway. <laughs> uh. In that episode, you get that image of him looking into the re the reflective part of the sword and having a conversation with himself, and it's ambiguous as to whether that's just his reflection, or if he's really carrying on a conversation with trapped sword fin. And mm -hmm. I really loved that visual detail. Yeah, that was a nice touch. Definitely thought of that as well. Um, but yeah, this is something that the show does, where it just goes disturbing and for a moment or two and just leaves it there and lets, you know, the character might not notice or comment on it. I mean, just like the show every now and again, like they do when Jake the Brick reminds you that Jake is a absentee father. He was just not involved in his, you know, he's abandoned his children to go off adventuring with Jake some more and just hang out and cook bacon pancakes. You know, like, this is the kind of thing that this show does. And if you want to think about it, it can be really depressing or sad or, or, uh, you know, dark. Or, or you can also just enjoy the bacon pancake song. Did, did you notice that is that you kind of quietly schooled every other show on how to do a clip show? Yeah, it was it was a fun way to do it. Yeah, and I I definitely made that connection to Cora while I was watching it, and the whole situation that happened there, um, or also like you said, Attack on Titan has a clip show as well. But um, yeah, because it's, it's like half stuff we've seen before, but you know, reincorporated in a fun way. And uh, you know, I, I think they also picked good moments. I remembered each of those moments from uh, from previous episodes. So they picked wisely, and they also didn't have so many of them that it was distracting. Yeah, it didn't take up. There was like I think the longest uh, bit was maybe the the retake we saw of the Lich uh, mm -hmm. versus uh, Nun. I'm just gonna keep calling him Nanjiani. Uh, Prismo, <laughs> Prismo uh, situation. But yeah, the whole. It, it, I think the reason that particular episode uh, is my favorite of these is just because it crammed. Uh, it really. I, I, I'm I'm amazed at the depth to which the show is able to go down this rabbit hole and into these further and further recursive layers in such a short span of time. It's imagine if inception was 11 minutes long, but equally complicated and uh, equally 
<laughs> definitely funnier, but equally uh, visually interesting in its own way as well. Yeah. So yeah, for for Jake the Brick, I just I had so much fun with that. I loved the tone of it. I loved seeing you know like Lemon Hope flying mm. by. I loved all these little you know shadows that they had and this notion of um, you know a very. I'm assuming I haven't actually listened to any Prairie Home Companion, but I'm assuming it's a very Garrison Keillor kind of thing. That's what it seemed like, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and just it was very it was warm and and comforting and it all tied into just the completely random Jake feels like being a brick. And now he's lonely. So he's talking to himself. Yeah, it had this this meditative quality that was actually weirdly haunting. Lemon Hope is one of those things that now they can just give a shout out to every now and again and just pull out of their toolkit and be like, "Yeah, we did that." And, yeah, what? And Boom. it's and it still it still hurts every time. <laughs> Lemon Hope, uh, man, Adventure Time has had a year, and they will be we'll be talking about them at the end of the year. Uh, any thoughts on Dentist? <sighs> Dentist was just so funny. Shh, I just the flies are here. <laughs> I could not stop laughing, first of all, at the at the constant repetition of Go Dentist, which shouldn't have worked for me as much as it did. And then just the the reveal of what's going on beneath the 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 rancid butter and snakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just I can't holes. Just Finn's constant saying what he sees, like none of it made a lick of sense. Uh, but th- they they hit that sweet spot of not just being random humor, but sort of giving voice to sort of what you're thinking while watching it. Uh, that was uh, really funny to me. And then in the middle of it, they uh, seemingly kill a character, which was also... What? Also, people were very confused by the Gamergate thing, but that really is a kind of ant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, as soon as... I thought they were going one way with that reference, and then I realized, no, no. I was like, that's... that's Okay, that's oddly topical. Yeah, this was probably scripted well before Gamergate was a thing. Yeah, yeah, most likely given the production schedule for animated series. Um, yeah, I, this was a really, you know, again, surreal and, and crazy, but fully committed episode like they always do on Adventure Time. And uh, I look forward to every now and again just seeing a fly with a trench coat, you know, flicker past. It's just a wonderful shading to the world. And it's just, it's. It's again, like you said, each of these episodes focuses on a different um, strength of the series. And really, it's especially during the time of year when people start putting together their best of uh, the year lists. This is a week of Adventure Time going, hey, we did this really well. And by the way, we also do that really well. And why aren't more of you watching us? It actually strangely reminded me of, do you remember back on South Park, like season four or five, when they had that stretch of episodes that was all set on the same night from a different character's perspective? Mm, no, I missed that, but that sounds fascinating. Uh, the, it was, I don't think any of them were necessarily like the greatest episodes ever, but it was interesting to watch them do kind of formal slash temporal experimentation over the course of several weeks. And this didn't have that exact feel, but it did have, it had this feeling of sort of random design, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. And uh, I, I agree. I agree. It was, uh, I was very glad to have the time with Adventure Time, and I'm going to miss not having an yeah. episode a night. Especially because they took like a whole month to not have new episodes, and they can't do that. <laughs> well, it, it seems like a very deliberate choice to do this instead. Um, and that's it's interesting, because they, they did take so many weeks off, they could have just <laughs> so, done... So you know, many, so many weeks. For Adventure Time, yes. For Adventure Time. They took several weeks off, and then 
aired that many episodes in a week. Yeah. So that's that feels deliberate. Um, but regardless of why, I'm glad to have spent the time with yes. Adventure Time this week. Um, so there is no Jane the Virgin this week. But the Jane the Virgin Award goes to Adventure Time. The the Jane the Virgin Award, yeah, definitely goes to Adventure Time for me. Which episode are you? Are you I'm going to give it to Is That You. You're you're also giving it to Is That You. I will give it to Is That You, runner-up, probably Jake the Brick, and then uh, still very funny, Dentist. I would say the episode that aired last week, uh, sorry, that aired this week, but we got to it last week, uh, was easily the least of the four. Mm-hmm. And I like that one, too. But yeah. yeah, I give the same order as well. Such a great week of Adventure Time. Uh, but now, uh, let's take a break, and we'll come back with our week in genre and drama. <laughs> Speaking genre and drama, Simon's going to finish his catch-up on Penny Dreadful. I'm going to do a genre roundup, including Person of Interest, Supernatural, and The Flash, and Legend of Korra, very briefly. Um, and then we'll move on to drama and both talk about Kingdom, Gentle Slope, and the newsroom, Contempt, which that is the perfect title for that episode. Absolutely. We'll, we'll get there. But first, let's kick things off with Penny Dreadful. And uh, Simon, did the show maintain for you the way that you were hoping it would? Uh, not really. Um, I don't think... I mean, it didn't so much collapse as it has these elements that build over the course of those first few episodes. And they have this fascinatingly ambiguous quality. Like, for instance, let's just take, oh, we have ancient evil. And it's kind of Satan, and it's kind of Nosferatu, and it's kind of Egyptian, and it's kind, you know, like, I'm just going to list all the things that it's kind of, and ha and sort of letting this universal evil take on these ambiguous uh, multi-origin um, sort of feel is really interesting over those first few episodes as an idea. Then when you kind of face that evil at the end of the season, it's like, oh, well, that just makes it sort of generic evil because it, they've folded in all these elements and sort of gotten rid of any specificity as a result. Uh, that's kind of disappointing. Uh, and additionally, you warned me about this, and you were right, uh, that last note that they give us of uh, you know, Eva Green's character, and sorry, she's still just Eva Green to me, facing, well, do you want to be awesome or do you want to be normal? They didn't put it that way, but that's sort of how they're framing it. Uh, that would have been a really interesting way to frame the whole season, uh, but that's not really the show we've been watching because uh, the show we've been watching, no, I do not want to rip my... I, I don't want to tear into my own wrists and uh, be thrown around and have every bo bone in my body broken and have any no i'll take being normal thank you because that sucked for everyone <laughs> uh 
And there's, you know, there's so many things that are outstanding about those episodes, the makeup, the effects, the performances, uh, the lighting, the direction, uh, some aspects of the writing and the, specifically the dialogue. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening, uh, but it doesn't really coalesce into a, into a really, I think there was the opportunity to make a really powerful statement uh, with a bunch of these characters. And I don't think it really happened with any of them. Uh, which is really too bad. And uh, you were right about Caliban. Caliban is the worst. Uh, I think uh, I, I want some feedback from you on this because I feel like a lot of that comes down weirdly to the makeup choices, the makeup and hair choices. I'm sorry, but I can't take a guy seriously when he looks like Meatloaf in the I Can't it, I'll Do Anything for Love video. <laughs> Oh, like that, exactly that is awesome um that's that's an interesting perspective on it for me the show kept asking me to feel bad for this guy who but he'd been killing people this whole time and slaughtering them i mean he's introduced killing the who we think is frankincense monster which is an interesting um take on the character as well and and then threatening everyone and it's like, oh, he's just a child acting out. It's like, well, say that to the people he's killed. I'm sorry, I have no sympathy for this person. If you wanted me to have sympathy for this person, you needed to do more than show the guy be, you know, uh, have a crush on somebody and then respond by killing people. I mean, no. Right. And, like, when he kills uh, the other Frankenstein's monster, that's an amazing moment. Because yeah. you just have that's it's shocking, it's gory, it's not foreshadowed in any way it's it, and also you really have developed an attachment to that character over a very brief period of time because it's such an inversion of what of how we think of Frankenstein's monster and then we get a character who is in no way an inversion of how we think of Frankenstein's monster it's like oh so you've replaced your uh, subversive interesting character with this not at all subversive not at all interesting character yeah <laughs> and and by the time he gets around to killing um uh, Doctor Frankenstein's new mentor, uh, Van Helsing. It that it's already become a parody of that scene that worked so well earlier. Uh, so yeah, a lot of stuff that just uh, sort of. I'm making it sound like I liked it less than I did because I actually enjoyed. I I found things to enjoy in every episode, and I'm very very curious to see what John Logan and company will do with season two because I do think it's it's got it's just loaded with potential. Uh, which sometimes it realizes, uh, sometimes for entire episodes or sets of episodes, and other times it just goes totally off the rails. And that can be the most fun thing to watch sometimes. Well, that's very, uh, yeah, I've, I'm, I guess I should say I'm, it's too bad that you didn't like it more. I'm not going to say I don't feel da validated a little bit <laughs> to, to hear we're on so, the sort of the same page with some of these elements, but um yeah, well, I'm sure it, certain elements of this will again come up in our end of the year podcast, which are shockingly nearby. I need to start working on those. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but for now, let's move on to my genre roundup. I wanted to check in quickly with Person of Interest, mostly because I caught up with the, the whole show. Not I didn't watch all of season one, but I watched all of season two and season three so that I could watch this season live. And then this season has been almost completely uninteresting to me. Like I have to remind myself that I ha need to watch it because it's on a night where there are several shows that I watch. It's on Tuesdays. So, so where did person of interest go wrong? The thing for with me about per person of interest is that I am not interested in the type of show that it is interested in being. 
I do not care about it as a statement on the surveillance state and a bunch of spies underground trying to do their thing. I am way more interested in this as a procedural and the version of the show that it was back in like season, the end of season two was by far the most successful for me. So um, what we get now, what we're getting now with, um, with these different um, differing factions, there's the machine and there's, um, uh, it's late when we're recording. So I'm, I'm having a brain fart with the other, um, the other, the other evil machine. Um, <laughs> So all these different factions, that is that is a show, and it has still an entertaining cast, um, but it's not the show I'm interested in watching, and it's not the most compelling version of that show. The small-scale stories, for me, are what works, rather than a wide-arcing, um, overreaching, you know, uh, small group of outsiders against the system that's not interesting to me at least in this this version so that's sort of where i am with person while each like element is well executed um in general like the character arcs or have continued there aren't really arcs the the moments we get with the characters have been enjoyable um i'm not interested in this dominic thing i'm not particularly interested in elias and um i really I kind of wish I hadn't spent the time catching up with the show as much as I did like the kind of show that it became in the end of season two and beginning of season three. Um, and I'm sure I'm in the minority on that, but I also think it's interesting. We haven't heard people really talking about person of interest as much. So if you're watching person of interest and you're listening to the podcast, drop me a line and let me know what you're thinking. Um, I don't know if I'm in the, the average, I don't know if this is the standard fan opinion or viewer opinion of the show, or if I'm out on a limb, but, um, I'm a little, you know, just underwhelmed by person. You sound crestfallen. That that's a good word for it. Yeah, I was ex- I was stoked. I marathoned that really shockingly quickly, but um, but no, less less entertained. Um, I, w- I wanted to mention Supernatural Girls, Girls, Girls because it was another fun episode, and I liked that the they bring Rowena and she doesn't appear to just be um, Knight of Hell Take Two, so that's nice. There's a reason for her to be another powerful redhead. Um, so I liked that and I like that they resolved the coal thing the way that they did. It's a bit heavy handed, the, the foreshadow we get with Dean's last line of the episode, but it was still, you know, it's a new approach, which I'm liking. Um, now if only they would have some female characters on the show who recurred because that's getting, getting old. I hear Charlie's coming back. Let's, let's bring her back from Oz and have her stay for a little bit because they need some women on the show who aren't characters of the week um the flash power outage i'm looking forward to the crossover bringing it next week that seems it seems to be a thing that happens in these kinds of super superhero chosen one kinds of shows where somebody loses their abilities and then we uh watch them realize you know this burden is such a gift and you know etc do they would do they want to go back to how they were or do they want to go back to they want to keep their normal life their new normal life i thought in the vein of that this one worked pretty well i liked what they gave uh, iris to do like that she resolves the situation herself um and i'm hoping that we're gonna fast forward on some of that i really need them to have the flash have barry stop pretending he's not the flash to iris or stop um deceiving iris because every scene that the, they have together feels increasingly creepy because he's got this years-long crush on her 
and she's clearly infatuated with the flash and doesn't know that it's him and doesn't reciprocate his feelings for her. And so it's just, it's, it's getting creepier every time that comes up. So I'm really hoping that soon we'll get forward progress on that. Um, Cora beyond the wilds, uh, definitely an improvement over the clip show last week. Listen to last week's podcast for my thoughts on that. Um, short version, screw you Nickelodeon. This was again another entertaining episode. I like that they're you know incorporating the the spirit for the spirit wilds for the end of the of the arc. Um, I I really don't like that they brought Zahir to be her basically her therapist. This is someone who tried to kill her last year, and now he's like wise sage mentor person, which you know is doesn't make any. I I wasn't willing to give them that one. But on the whole, the, you know, the arc that they're continuing to struggle with for Korra is an interesting one. So we'll see how it pays off. But again, it's hard for me to to see the overall sh- structure of the season and not be a little disappointed. And, and again, I do wonder if that's just because I'm watching it piecemeal and not um, in marathon form. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is that The Walking Dead had its mid-season finale. And we talked about that this week on The Walking Dead podcast with a uh, friend of the show, Tom Vandenworth. So you guys can hear my thoughts and, of course, Ricky as well from Sound on Sight, as well as Todd's on this week's podcast, which by the time you're hearing this, that should either already be in your feed or should be coming to the feed shortly. Um, that wraps up genre. I would give my pick of the week to Supernatural. And I guess you give your pick of the week to Penny Dreadful. I guess I have to. And well, let's move on to drama Kingdom. Uh, what did you think of this episode? Uh, well, I the jury's out on sort of where this last stretch of Kingdom is going. The, the show feels kind of rudderless when it doesn't have an imminent fight, which I think is an issue. Uh, and there's another thing that's happening, which I don't know if it's an issue or not, because I still, the, the cool and strange thing about kingdom is that I'm not really sure, uh, how it wants us to feel about these characters uh, or if it even has a way it wants us to feel about these characters. And I, I, it's doing a nice job of playing with that ambiguous space, uh, because the longer the season goes on, the more, the clearer it becomes that Alvi is the problem. Alvi is doesn't have good justifications for the, the 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 dumb and bad things that he's done in life. I think that that's become increasingly clear. Like we keep waiting for good reasons that he behaves the way he does and lies to people or isn't uh, isn't forthcoming in in the right ways, and we keep waiting for that justification. I think it's just becoming increasingly clear that the, that those justifications are never coming. That's interesting to me because. Um... The only issue I have with him is uh, what we get this week with him and Lisa and his controlling, um, his unwillingness to, to 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 give her a legitimacy in the gym, like on a legal front. Um, it doesn't even if he's not willing to completely sign the gym over. The fact that she has nothing on paper at all uh, is. And, and then, of course, obviously he cheats on her this week. So there's that. I was going to say, but, minor but, detail. But, but no, but it's so it's not it's not just that he cheats on her. It's it's right. this other stuff as well. There's, a you know, underlying the relationship, there's tension. Um, that is the only real issue I have with him uh, relationship wise. Um, I don't, you know, given what we've been seeing with uh, the mom, I don't know that I blame him in that the way that that fell apart because she's 
totally clearly fucked up. Um, right. But and... I think that the the way that he looks at that situation and just kind of backs off and doesn't really say anything to his sons about like uh, about he gives them no guidance in this situation. It's just like, Mom, I'm going to let you deal with this. And also the way I would I think the way he's handled Ryan is highly irresponsible. Yeah, Ryan, the 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 relationship with him and Ryan is very it's not one that necessarily paints Elvie in a great great light because he's clearly he's using this guy. Um and they have a complicated backstory we haven't gotten much time with because of course Ryan ditched Elvie for the pros. He made it to the pros or to the, the you know, the ultimate uh, UFC and then ditched Alvy um, almost immediately. So there's there's other stuff that we could easily get later there that I'm, I'm willing to give them that this mm -hmm. is a complicated relationship, I guess. And as for the, you know, with Christina and, and the kids, I don't know that Jay just wouldn't listen to anything Alvy's got to say because they have a damaged enough relationship as it is. Um, and who knows about Nate? So um, I could see him pulling aside Nate and saying, this is a really stupid idea. This is not, you know, every time Christina has another drink and here she's, she's getting high. And I mean, how does anyone, how does any of them think that that is an okay thing or that this is someone serious about their, about, you know, staying off of heroin if she's completely fine getting drunk. Um, but I think with Jay, that's the one part of the show, corner of the show that I actually did like this week. This was definitely a problematic episode for me. Um, this, I, I was so uh, completely uninterested in what it looked like the show, in every direction it looked like the show was going. So I'm not interested in this version of Lisa's tensions at the gym or this version of Christina. It seemed like they kept going in the most, in the least interesting path. So with with Nate, I'm not interested in the um, trying not to be gay that I looks like we're getting from him. Right. Uh, that's that's the least interesting way I think that they can take that character. Um, I feel like we've seen that storyline plenty of times. Um, same thing with Christina. Same thing with Alvy. Same thing with Lisa. But with Jay, I like that at least they have him think he's going to be all tough and then goes in and, you know, just vomits outside and is totally destroyed by what the kind of thing he saw himself almost do. Um, that could continue to fall in line with some of the other developments or it could go in a more interesting way. Uh, what do you think? Are you more generous than I am on this episode? Uh, I feel like Jay leaving that house and vomiting instead of doing something terrible was the moment. It's like the show. It's like the show taking a moment and thinking, now we're not going to be sons of anarchy. Peace. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> I mind. Um, yeah. So that was great. Uh, I I disagree about Lisa. I think that the scenes that we get of of her sort of very soberly uh, taking stock of the situation and making some some very uh, some very concerted decisions, uh, so, some very concerted stabs at self preservation, I think made sense for the character. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I, I should they... say. I, I actually liked those that part of it. I liked her okay. lunch with her friend. Um, I'm not interested in the relationship strife drama that it looks like they're doing with her and Alvy. Right. And that's why I'm hoping that the, that what they're setting up is a split between them so that next season, 
it's Alvi versus Lisa as rival trainers. That would be <laughs> awesome. That could be. That could certainly be fun. I also like that she. I, I liked the the confrontation with her and Ryan. And where she says, I went because I pitied you and you're an asshole for making me have to say that. You know, mm -hmm. like, I, I like that she doesn't, you know, she's not making doe eyes at him. And we've seen what Alvi, their interactions such that Alvi is concerned about if she's uh, still hung up on Ryan. But we haven't really gotten that from her. And I like that distinction on the show. I like that she doesn't look like she's interested in going back. I like that her response, it didn't, there might be some level of posturing to it, but it did feel mostly, at least to me, heartfelt when she's like, yeah, that was a while ago and it sucked and I've moved on. Yeah, there are some scenes that very clearly suggest uh, lust or physical attraction. Mm -hmm. uh, some specific shots of her looking, uh, which, you know, go ahead and look, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it's, I think we have no reason to doubt, I think, the emotional uh, reality of that situation. And yeah. yes, you're right. It is, uh, there, it is a refreshing and very well-acted moment. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this episode or <laughs> fears for what's coming? No. Despite our complaints, I still look forward to the uh, kingdom and watching it and sort of pouring over, trying to figure out what show, what kind of show it wants to be. I'm, I'm still pro kingdom, but I am, there's a big old uh, asterisk next right. to it now now i wouldn't just recommend it because i gotta see how they finish up their season and what their priorities are right um, I, I was really interested in christina earlier but this version of christina i am like you said early on this is a show that could just go off the rails but they keep making smart decisions I'm more i'm, I'm less doubt i'm less sure that they're going to continue making smart decisions with Lee, with um Christina and with Alvi. You you know m m the best sign of hope for the show and Christina right now is the fact that she's in the main credits. If she was a guest actor every week, I would be very worried about that character. Well, I mean, I I, I feel like a bad person for not really caring if she dies. Uh, which is no, but I think right the now. show is. But I think the show is is worse off if she if if she just like ODs and like mm -hmm. that's that's that with that that was why we spent time with that character. Okay. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Um, let's move on. Speaking of, that's why we spent time with that character. The newsroom <laughs> and contempt. Okay. Okay. First of all, episodes called contempt. Um, so I I want to apologize to the internet. Because this episode is my fault. I mean, it's more Aaron Sorkin's fault. But it's also clearly my fault. Because you'll recall that last week I said out loud that I was giving Aaron Sorkin the benefit of the doubt. And that the gym stuff was being written in an intelligent way on purpose to show Jim being an asshole. And they weren't really going to be dumb enough to stick to that or double down on it for the next week. And, you know, you mentioned the, the whole that they were hinting at Maggie getting back into that. And I thought, I even thought, I even thought at the time, they're not really going to do that. Are they? And Oh my God, did they ever? Yep. Oh my God. Okay. Um, did, did this episode just not completely erase every last shred of your goodwill for this show for this season? Well, there are some things that I do like 
in this Don and Sloan. Okay, besides Don and Sloan. Yeah, I love. I really love the resolution to the Don and Sloan thing, where he's like, "No, I was just fucking with you. I mean, I got re- you're hilarious, like with the the Instagram thing, and you know, it's like yes, that just like dance puppets. I mean, that's that was such a better resolution than anything else they could have done for that arc. Uh, and it's been fun watching the Don and Sloan, you know, screwball comedy hour, and somebody snap up those two and put them in a screwball comedy because I want I want to see it. Uh, I would not have thought Olivia Munn is the you know the screwball comedy, you know I don't know Rosalind Russell for this this show, but she is clearly she's delightful. Um, so there's that. That certainly works. Um, other things that work in here, um, Max <laughs> scene with. Play a Duvall. That worked for me. Uh, uh, okay. Actually, that didn't work for me because this episode really doubles down on the idea. Because, I, I mean, it was already there, but, it, but they really highlighted it this week, and it made me think about how dumb it was. This this notion of, uh, of a whistleblower or someone connected to a whistleblower going to a major news network with kind of liberal leanings, but not really... Uh, with this scoop ah, that's really dumb like and and we're and they're supposed to be surprised when it doesn't go well uh i don't i don't know why i'm supposed to care about that everything about this setup is just like it's it's like a really stupid game of fantasy baseball except with with except with like journalism buzzwords okay well how did you feel about the fake out with um mona from uh, or I should say, rather than Mona from Mad Men, how about uh, one of the sorority sisters? <laughs> right. Yes, yes. From the initiation of Sarah. Right. Talia Balsam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. There was nothing surprising about any of that. It was all very clearly telegraphed. There's only two episodes left. We know there's not going to be a Hail Mary. We know that they're going to lose the network and they're going to well, start over and blah, blah, blah. If they were, if that was going to happen, it would happened. It would have happened in the finale. Not into from the finale, right? Yeah, it's it's. There's nothing interesting or about that plotting. Uh, speaking of plotting, and I mean that with a D. Two of them. Uh, was that not the longest rendition of Ave Maria ever? Don't just don't <laughs> don't even start with that. Version well, please, of Ave please. Maria. I I, I want to I want to hear your thoughts on this version of Ave Maria, please. Um. Okay. So. I don't have very many of them because I tried to tune it out, but the, just the, 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 it was seemed to be going very much for like a, um, a coffee house art, artsy folky kind of sound that's, um, but it felt very manufactured in that way. You don't get to have, uh, that produced a sound and then try to pretend like you're scooping into the notes in a, uh, not, uh, carefully choreographed manner um so there's that and then the let alone the orchestration on behind it he just like walks into a music school and gets an oboe and like as someone who's putting you know who puts together music for weddings as part of my job i was gonna i was not gonna give them that one especially when they're just like the sound that they're gonna like you don't take a clarinet and an (laughs) oboe and then put them with artsy folky guitar lady who why was she in a conservatory setting yes obviously there are people of all stripes and all ilks who are studying to be uh, professional musicians yes 
I'm just saying the kind of sound they were getting from her and what the way that she presented herself in that the few shots we got of her, if he had walked into a coffee shop and she was there, I would totally, totally have given it to him. But I want to know who goes into a conservatory practice room to strum Ave Maria to themselves in that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're nitpicking now, but I, I yes, figured I you'd am. have some, some we, we, but I figured you'd have some specific thoughts. I mean, okay. There, there are other things that I'm going to mention quickly later, but we have to talk about Jim. I think John Gallagher Jr. is an extremely uh, charming actor. I thought he was great in all of Kittredge, and I've I've liked him in other things, I'm sure. Uh, I have this piece of plastic in my hand. I'm not sure where I got it from, but I wish it was big enough to wrap around my head uh, so that I could suffocate myself instead of thinking about Jim for another second of my life because he is the world's worst human. Well, and you know what I think is interesting, and I was I was pondering this earlier today, is that this is an episode, and these last couple is an episode that has Jim be the world's worst, you know, history's worst monster, but gives equal voice to the completely rational and maybe, you know, not morally okay, but, um, you know, demanding respect for herself, Hallie. Like, she stands up for herself. She is, you know, the independent and um, reliant, self-reliant figure, you know, there. She's she's not taking... She takes his crap for a while, but then eventually does reach her breaking point. So this is an episode that gives her... That, that gives her a voice in a really significant way and then goes oh but jim is right still like 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 i really love the moment of of him saying you know i am part my job is to be is to support you and i'm glad to have that job like that scene if they had let they just could have just let that moment so that you could have a little balance but then he's got to go and be a dick and you don't it's not like he's it's not like he's smiling cuz he thinks he's being funny He's just being an asshole. He's just being a destructive asshole. And if the way that they're going, and I saw someone else talk about this on Twitter as well, and I'm with them. I can't remember who it was, unfortunately. If the way that this season ends is with him bitter and alone, then well done. I've got excellent arcing. I totally buy it. If the way the season ends is with him and Maggie, like happily riding off into the sunset of terribleness. Which it will be. It, I'm just going to call it now. It will be. Then fuck that man because it's just ridiculous i mean and when we have and yes jim is the worst in this obviously but they also maggie's playing pool with new boyfriend jimmy simpson who i still enjoy his casting in this and he's fun um he does the best one can do with the dialogue he's given and she literally again this dialogue that sorkin gives her basically has her say oh great some mansplaining I love when people do that. And then has her boyfriend mansplain to her in such a powerful and convincing way that she goes, oh, you're right. Two seconds after saying, <laughs> don't mansplain to me. Uh, yeah. Uh, poor Jimmy Simpson. Those scenes are just not at all believable uh, to me as much as he tries to sell it. Just that, uh, for, uh, for so many reasons. But, um, uh, t- is this, I gotta ask, 
can you think of an of an example on the show of or really any of Sorkin's work of a woman telling a man, no, that's what you think that you think, but what you really think is this <laughs> and the show no. treating it as correct. No, there's there are there are a fair number of, of scenes of a woman putting a man in his place, um, mm -hmm. but uh, usually it's played for laughs. It's not it's not played played for serious, and certainly not uh, according to the formulation you just gave. I mean, the, to me, the sort of staring into the, the show's soul moment of this episode is when Jim says, uh, "Just please tell me that I'm right, that you know that I'm right." Which I feel like is more instructive about the show's mindset than it means to be. Does that make any sense? It does, but then the, the, in that moment, the show doesn't play him as right. It show plays him as pathetic. So what is that? Then what does it say? But then it's treating him as justified and correct in the way that the, all the other characters treat these other elements, the way that they all respond to what he's saying. I think it's because uh, I think the reason it doesn't work, at least for me, is because we get so much bluster from the Sam Waterston character yeah. in his scenes about this shifting paradigm and how it's wrong. And the show clearly backs him up. And that helps to reinforce where Jim's coming from, because it's all against new media and all against there's this weird, weird uh, antipathy towards first person writing that comes out of nowhere by the way in this mm -hmm. episode uh like okay this is the target of the week all right um and it's it, it it has a cumulative effect that makes that scene feel just wrong and dirty yeah at least she dumps his ass but i mean cause i i don't know how she didn't break up with him so much sooner well the and that's another thing that just feels dirty and wrong throughout this episode is that we have two women taking Jim seriously as a romantic prospect for some period of time in the space of the same episode. And why? Why would you ever do that? He is clearly... And the thing is, th Jim doesn't even have a history of being this horrible a character. To my recollection, he's... I mean, he's He's always had... been condescending. And Maggie right, says but... that here. Yes, but this is, this is uh, clearly a new level of condescension. Like you said, if, if they're... If they're going somewhere with that and we're just not seeing it yet, then by all means, great. But I just don't see it coming. I, I do not see that kind of arc happening. Yeah, it could be um, yeah, because he, he seems spiteful. He seems um, reactionary. He uh, is paranoid, too. It's like you got yourself fired intentionally so that all is like, yeah, I got myself fired from this job, well-paying job that I like so that I could have to come up with uh, original stuff as a freelancer instead of working for ACN. Totally, that's what it was. It's also <laughs> very, very egocentric and narcissistic, everything that, that Jim is saying. Uh, but you're right, because other elements of it are backed up by what's happening elsewhere in the show, it becomes very difficult to discern what the show actually thinks. Right. I, I, we should be wrapping this up. I will say that despite how horrible all the gym stuff is, I actually find more stupid and offensive. Uh, the fact that Sorkin thinks that this alternative, uh, this parallel universe history is interesting. This notion of, uh, McAvoy getting one last chance to be a serious journalist by going to jail and standing up for the first amendment, even though he secretly doesn't really care about the first amendment. <laughs> and, uh, etc., etc. 
And it's just, it's this, wow, like, this is hero worship toying, like, via the resurrect, via, like, engaging with these act, with things that are in, in the real world, that, that in the real world are dangerous and exciting and provocative, and here just serve as fuel for this bizarre hero worship. Yeah, I don't disagree, and, um, you know, I, I like the notion of him thinking he's too famous for them to jail and then finding out he's not. That was fun. Uh, the part of that storyline that gets frustrating is the overly Sorkin-y, here's where you messed up. I was on your side. Blah, blah, blah. Now I'm going right, to yeah. Which happens like four times in the course of this episode and the, the one before. I mean, it happens a lot. Um, and obviously Sorkin has certain beats he, he likes to go to a lot. Go to one of the fabulous Sorkin, Sorkin supercuts on YouTube if you want plenty of evidence that he writes a voice and then hope the best actors or the best portrayals of characters of his uh, are by actors who are able to bring their own specificity to those roles because it's not there in the writing. So it's not surprising that there's some level of repetition to certain um, t of of Sorkin's favorite beats and um, uh, dramatic approaches. However, you you only get to do that so many times in the span of a couple episodes. I mean, it really, that doesn't, I don't buy your faux outrage. It's like, oh, well, now I can't, I'm choosing to be invested because you've done the tiny little thing that's going to push me over the edge and now I'm going to verbally bitch slap you. I was going to give you it, this one, but now you've angered me and I'm going to actually fight. I mean... Yeah. That's, I need to not have that beat happen again. Last two quick points I want to make. Uh, the tipping point for that stuff uh, for me this week was the judge giving McAvoy a window to give a little speech, which, like, I'm like, no, I, I've never been in an American courtroom, but I'm pretty sure no judge would ever do that, even for an ex-lawyer who was previously in their court. It was dumb and showboaty and awful and offensive. Uh, and lastly, that had to be the most elaborate montage for a wedding no one gives a fuck about in TV <laughs> history. Well, there's certainly that. I was my last thing was going to be that I thought the the wedding dress was beautiful and I loved that it wasn't just this straight up um classic white or ivory. Uh, I liked that there was a pattern to it. I it felt very in keeping with a short notice wedding dress, but it was also, you know, lovely and distinct and worked very well for the character. So that was my last note. And uh, I'm hearing that next week's is even worse. So. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If that's Don't true. Don't want to get your hopes up. Oh, man. We need to be, we need to sync up our viewing on that one if that's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But for now, what wins your week in, in drama? <laughs> uh, well, obviously, Kingdom's going to take it, and uh, I have high hopes. I wish you hadn't said that, because now my hopes for Newsroom next week are too high. Oh, actual last note, as I noticed as I noted on Twitter today, because it's ending now, Canadian Newsroom got more episodes than American Newsroom. Nice. And for those who don't know, yes. check out our DVD shelf, www.soundonsite.org. Uh, slash DVD hyphen shelf hyphen library. We had Jesse Singer from Watch It TV podcast on to talk about the Canadian series, The Newsroom, and it is delightful and hilarious and feature is, is, is a precursor to Louie in many ways, and y'all should check it out because it is fabulous. Um, so yes, that makes me happy as well. Yay. Um, I'm going to give it to Kingdom as well, just on a default, even though I wasn't as, as hot on that episode, and hopefully we'll have 
more contenders next week. A few show notes here. You can find a post for this episode up at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. We'd love to start a conversation there. Um, you can also um, find us in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And of course, we're both up on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are at Sucker Howl. And so what is our question of the week? Uh, I don't want to make it newsroom related every week, but this is not really newsroom related anyway. Given their, uh, sorry, given Sorkin's head-smackingly pointless take on the surveillance state as it relates to journalism, I'm wondering if there are any sort of uh, current events or current uh, current controversies that people uh, would like to see reflected in a in a TV series or as a plot on a TV series that they're not. Hmm. I get the feeling you're too tired to come up with a good answer, and so am I. Well, what 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 I immediately went to it would be controversial. I don't know that there's a way to do it, but I'm oddly fascinated by the notion of Leslie Nope in Ferguson. <laughs> that's just that's just where your brain went. Yeah. I don't even, you know, like, what if, you know, something, like, it just, that just would be, just would break, it's just such cognitive dissonance, you know, but seeing Eternal Optimist, small town, or, or you know, in that case, suburb, uh, you know, longtime uh, lover of that town and being so connected to it and, and everything, what if she had to deal with something horrible? Anyways, we don't want to get uh, political on the televerse, uh, but I, I'm just going to leave that there and see if I, I look forward to hearing what y'all um, have to say and what, what comes to mind for you guys. And I'm just going to be over in the corner here with my delicious cheeses and chocolates being Switzerland. Um, Simon, I know you have thoughts on this, but again, that's not for it's not for the podcast. Um, so body cameras. That's all I want. Just body cameras. Uh, on that note, we'll take a break and come back with Dr. Paul Booth to talk about representations of fans and fandom on TV. So we'll be right back after this. All right, listen up, girls. Now, you know you're all here because you love Supernatural. Actually, I was hoping we'd do Wicked. Yeah, it'd have been easier. Uh, I know I have expressed some differences in opinion regarding this particular version of Supernatural, uh, but tonight it is all about. Marie's vision. This is Marie's supernatural. So I want you to get out there and I want you to stand as close as she wants you to and I want you to put as much sub in that text as you possibly can. There is no other road, no other way, no day, but today. Did he just quote Brent? Not enough to get us in trouble. Now you get out there and you kick it in the ass. <sighs> All right, bring it in. <sighs>
back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week, it's another episode that ends in zero, so it's time for an informed opinions. And this week, we're doing something a little different. I'm looking forward to it because we're talking about representations of fans and fandom on TV, a little bit spurred by, of course, Supernatural's 200th episode fan fiction and some other conversations we've been having on the podcast for a while. Um, but I think it'll be fun. Joining us to help uh, with this conversation is Dr. Paul Booth. Uh, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. So what is your experience with, with fandom or representations of fandom? Uh, well, my experience is uh, it's kind of, it's my area of, of scholarship. It's what I study and what I write about and what I teach about. And so um, I guess I've been studying fans and fandom for almost 10 years. Uh, and um, my one of my most – or I should say my, my, my most recent book on fandom, which hasn't even come out yet. It's coming out in March. Um, talks about representations of fans um, and how fans uh, are portrayed on television. Well, what are some trends do you notice? Is it, is it been a relatively static representation that, that you've noticed or have there been, has it shifted over time? And what are the, if so, what are the recent trends that you're seeing? Uh, well, it definitely has changed over time. Um, I think uh, we don't start seeing representations of fans on TV until about the kind of late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, and when you start seeing um, kind of fans portrayed then, they tend to be uh, very crazy, um, you know, the kind of insane fans and the classic. Um, I'm sure you've seen the Saturday Night Live classic sketch with William Shatner, you know, get a life. That was the first thing I went to. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, what's funny is that's kind of the first thing that almost all fan scholarship goes to um, is is that one moment. Um, I think it was 1986 when, when Shatner says get a life to fans. It's kind of this defining moment um, because fans – um, were, were pretty invisible up till that point, and then all of a sudden they became known and they became ridiculed. Um, and so it was uh, um, a kind of re- a negative uh, interpretation in a lot of ways. Um, but much more – we saw kind of a shift, um, I think, in the uh, um, kind of late 2000s uh, where the kind of power of fandom starts to be – um, more embraced by the media industry. Um, uh, the cynic in me says it's because fans spend a lot of money and the media industry just wants to make a lot of money and they think here's a way to do it. Um, but uh, uh, you do start to see more positive representations of fans, um, things like fan fiction in, in Supernatural's 200th episode. But even before that, um, there were fans portrayed in Supernatural and I would say they got it about 75% right. So, you know, that's better than get a life. Um, but so across the board, yeah, there's been a big shift. And I think what we see today are fans that are empowered, fans that have a life, um, and fans that are actually doing kind of interesting and fun things. I wonder personally how much of that – you were talking about the fact that uh, nerds, fans, et cetera, devotees spend money, uh, and that's – I mean, always been true, but what hasn't always been true is that fans can have a very direct impact on a show's production with the rise of the collaborative economy and crowdsourcing and things like that. So I wonder if, uh, you know, now we have projects that are very much slavishly devoted to not ne- not necessarily depicting fans, but at least catering to their expectations. If you think about, you know, the Veronica Mars movie, from what I understand. Uh, so I wonder if 
uh, we're going to see a whole lot more fan incorporation, if only because of this patronage aspect. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, Veronica Mars, the Kickstarter, was a major turning point um, because all of a sudden – and I think just be, not just because of the money that was raised but the speed at which it was raised. I mean they made their goal within a day and within I think five days they had twice it and within 30 days they had – Three times how much they wanted, or, or or whatever, um, whatever the number is. So, yeah, I mean, I think we are seeing this huge shift, um, in the acknowledgement of fans, and then, um, you know, the, social media has had a lot to play in that as well, as fans are able to communicate more with, uh, the media producers, tweeting things. Um, you see a lot more, um, kind of amateur. Uh, critical commentary going up online, um, and that's read by the producers. Um, there's a kind of famous story in X-Files fandom um, back in the day, which was really one of the first fandoms that was like really online, and um, that and Buffy. Uh, but the, uh, the producers of X-Files, Chris Carter, used to read the forums um, of fans posting about X-Files and he named some characters after fans that had been posting because he liked what they had to say. Um, so there's this, uh, that's like what you could do when the X-Files was on, but now there's so much more that fans can, can be heard. Um, and there's so much more for fans to say, um, in terms of economics, I think you're absolutely right that we're starting to see the shift in an acknowledgement that fans, give uh, uh, more than just their time and more than just their attention, but actually give their money uh, to making these shows happen. And a great example of that is Chuck, um, which you know was constantly in danger of being canceled, constantly being canceled at the last minute and then renewed at the last minute. Um, and their, their, their kind of embrace of corporate sponsorship with Subway um, was almost like this in-joke with the fans, and the fans would storm subways and demand their subs because it was going to fund Chuck, and then Chuck came back by having a whole episode about Subway, and so it became this really interesting corporate fan uh, uh, kind of push-and-pull uh, tug-of-war um, who's really in charge. I know I bought a sub at Subway yeah, yeah. for one of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have to ask Simon if you did because I, I, there's a zero percent chance that that happened. But uh, I do think as the network share keeps going down, as as TV becomes increasingly specialized and more niche, then th- that rabid fan base has more and more power. It's more and more the percentage of the people that are watching. That's how you know, along with ridiculous international deals, that's how Hannibal is still on the air. Uh, yeah. There not, might not be a lot of people, but they will put their money where their mouth is and uh, they will never shut up online. But I think when we talk <laughs> about the economics of um, of this, I think an important distinction is also that you can buy. You can yeah. put your money where your mouth is, whereas, you know, back when, when Star Trek was was creating, you know, slash fic and all sorts of other things, the fans of Star Trek, I should say, Trekkies and Trekkers, um, there, there wasn't the same, anywhere near the same kind of way to express your affinity for a show. Like, I remember uh, things like the Jane hat on Firefly. People wanted Jane hats. And... Yeah, Fox wasn't making them, so they said, "Okay, well, let's make an entire cottage industry of them on Etsy." 
Um, and more and more networks and, and production companies are becoming aware of that and finding ways to let their fans really be included. You're absolutely right. And and um, the, the Jane hat is such a great example because it's um, – in some ways, it's exactly as you say. It's this, like there was a need. Pe- the fans expressed this desire to have Jane hats and and Fox came through. But looked at from a different perspective, um, you know, there was this fan community that was built around Jane hats, right? On Etsy, knitting these hats, and and really, there's this, as you say, this cottage industry of making hats, and it was, uh, it was very popular. And I, I remember seeing people wearing the hats at conventions and things. But the minute Fox stepped in and started making their own hats, uh, they started stopping Etsy production of fan created hats. So. What you get with these kind of mass-produced products um, is almost this kind of uh, consolidation of force so that, um, you know, cutting fans out of it, you know, although there may not have been as many uh, uh, or certainly no DVDs or or VHSs um, or that many books or action figures back in the 60s with Star Trek, there was a huge amount of fan work, as you said, the slash fiction, Um, even, I mean, our first – inklings of fan vitting was with star trek um and so um um and that was all fan produced and that was all fan created and it was done done for free and it was done for the fan community and so the minute that fox steps in or nbc steps in and says here's your merchandise by the way stop making your own (laughs) you're you're kind of they're they're shutting out just a huge amount of fan creativity and and a lot of the pleasure that people get being fans lies in that kind of creative uh, uh, activity. You know, not everyone loves buying things. Not everyone likes uh, uh, filling shelves with action figures that collect dust. Um, some people like to make things. And, and I think we haven't figured out a system yet where both of these things are work together um, as opposed to working in two separate spheres. I would assume also that a lot of the that shift that you saw in the mid '90s, uh, sort of in favor of fandom, is a generational thing. If you think about people like Shatner and presumably the other people who created and were involved with uh, that initial run of Star Trek, for the most part, obviously not all of them. Uh, some of them have, you know, maybe were not cool at the time with it, but have gotten to be cool with it, like Nimoy, obviously. Um, but these are by and large people that did not grow up getting to be sort of getting to have that sort of imaginative uh, devotional relationship with weekly television that people who grew up watching Star Trek had through Star Trek, you know, the, 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 pro- the programming before that didn't necessarily engender that kind of, uh, that kind of fandom to that, to that degree and to that scope. So they couldn't, they didn't necessarily have a way to relate to that back to their own experiences. But then you get to the, to the mid nineties, people like Chris Carter and Joss Whedon, I'm sure I don't know much about their biography, but there's no way they didn't grow up being those some of those kids, you know, writing ridiculous, uh, you know, fan scripts and sending them to Gene Roddenberry and the Battlestar Galactica people. Being like, hey, how about this, etc. And then, you know, getting a getting a polite form letter back being like, um, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Joss Whedon was such a fanboy. Um, 
uh, and and you can see it in Buffy. You can see it in in all the references he's throwing in, and and even later with uh, Marvel's Avengers and all the uh, kind of pop culture references that he's making. Like he's such a fanboy, um, and so I think that that you're you're you put your finger on it, right? That um, uh, fandom fandom is changing, and and um, it's not that people are any kind of different in terms of their fandom, in terms of their feeling. It's not like I like Doctor Who more than people like Star Trek back in the 60s. But it's there are more fans. Fans are more visible. Fans are louder. Um, and fans are um, uh, are not going to take it anymore, if you'll allow me to paraphrase. <laughs> right? They're, they're, fans are not going to be told to get a life because they have a life and and they're they're very capable of having a life and also being a fan because those two things aren't necessarily different. Well, I mean, I, I think Doctor Who is a really fascinating example just because of its longevity. I mean, so you, mm. you have things happen like now Peter Capaldi is the doctor, or Capaldi, I should say, and when he was a kid, he wrote a fan letter into yeah. the, the Doctor <laughs> Who magazine and they have it. They're like, hey, here's what he published. He was sent in when he was like 10 or, or David Tennant grew up with the fifth doctor and, and you know had that connection to the series as well, uh, let alone the the fan the 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 fan fiction the the audio drums keeping Doctor Who alive for the eighteen years I think it was eighteen years that it was off the air and and creating um, enough of a need or enough of an awareness still after being off the air for so long that it made sense for the BBC to say I think we can bring the show back and that's why I think it's to take it back to representations of fans on TV that's why I am always so flummoxed and frustrated with um, Stephen Moffat's apparent confusion <laughs> or misunderstanding yeah. of fans. It's, like, we talked about this on the Televerse recently. I understand, and Simon, you know, you said this as well, we understand when uh, Aaron Sorkin doesn't get how fans work, because that just kind of <laughs> makes sense to us. But the guy who grew up obsessed with and loving Doctor Who, which mm -hmm. Moffat did, uh, and who runs the show, and I can't believe I get to run the show that I loved as a child it's amazing how does he not get fans well he doesn't get a certain kind of fan yeah right like um the 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 type of fandom that um i think and i'm you know this is i don't know stephen moffat so i don't know if this is the type of fan he was but there is a big you could call them the doctor who mafia um actually one of my colleagues matt hills has called them the doctor who mafia um these fans in this who grew up in the 70s and have this very clear idea of what they want doctor who to be um are now making doctor who um, Mark Gatiss, Stephen Moffat, Russell T. Davis, um, and uh, kind of Paul Cornell, a number of other writers, right? All growing up in that era who they wrote for the New Adventures, uh, book series, um, they did the audios, um, and now they're making the actual program. And so they get their kind of fandom, this kind of, um, continuity fandom this fandom of like putting references in to the old series you've seen that a lot more with moffat than you have with davis right this um all these things like referencing back to the old the classic series um but moffat is very good at some things and he's not very good at other things and um representations of difference is not i would not i would say is not one of his strong suits um uh, put that more politely maybe um because he he just doesn't he, he he has trouble seeing outside of his own 
worldview. Um, and so you see those kinds of, that's, that, that's my interpretation of the fans you see, like Oswin, who is such an amazing fan in, in Doctor Who. And then I can tell spoilers, right? Well, um, unfortunate things happen to, and it's Osgood. Uh, oh, Osgood, yeah. Yes, I did that in my review. I had to go back and do some correction of that because it's an easy mistake to make. But yes, there's an unfortunate situation that happens with Osgood and on Doctor Who that could mean many things, but we'll leave it there. But yeah, people were not happy. <laughs> we're not happy about that because um, – and and you can see the same thing when Moffat does Sherlock mm-hmm. um, where he's kind of trolling fans in that first episode of the new series – all these theories about how Sherlock survived the fall and at the end they're all like fan theories and he kind of makes fun of them. Um, it's, it's because he, he likes it the way he likes it. And you know, that's fine if you like it that way. And a lot of people do. I mean, like there's, um, and fandom is certainly not unified, um, in their, uh, discussion of Dr. Who and, um, I did one of my favorite Doctor Who fan quotes um, is, uh, you know, you have two Doctor Who fans when they both disagree about why they love Doctor Who. And I think that that's really accurate. It's like no one agrees on the same thing, but we all just like it. So um, but getting uh, you're getting back to representations of fans. Um, Doctor Who has done this for many years, actually, going back to the classic series. Um, there was uh, an episode called Greatest Show in the Galaxy, which is one of my all-time favorite episodes. Uh, How? To my it's so because bad. It, it's so <laughs> awesome because there is a like killer clown in it, and I am terrified of that clown. The clown is creepy. I'll give you that. That rap, though, man. That rap. Oh, the rap. Oh, yes. The rap is fantastic. Um, you know what? I think maybe I'll have to uh, um, uh, memorize that rap and perform it sometime. <laughs> um, but uh, there's this kid in it. Wizkid is his name. And he comes in and he's a huge fan of the, the, the circus in that episode. And he's like, I love the circus. It's it used to be better in the old days, but, um, you know, and it's got kind of a cult following now. And he's obviously just talking about Doctor Who. There's a fan writer's referencing Doctor Who. And this kid, he loves Doctor Who, and he gets up there and he performs, and he's killed, like, right in front of us. And it's like this moment of the producers just saying, like, screw you, fans. Like, stop being so uh, into us, which is a really weird thing. Like, why would people not want people to be into it in whatever glorious way they want to be into it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to contrast that approach, and there are certainly many shows that have taken that approach with when they've included uh, fans, either like of the series itself on a meta level or in other other realms, um, with something like Supernatural, which, while it has it's absolutely making fun of the fandom's obsession, for example, with the Wincest and these other elements, but at the same time, it it respects these characters with these ridiculous to the show points of view as people. It doesn't yeah. belittle them. And I feel like that's, that's the difference that I see there. Simon, what, uh, what are the representations of fans come to mind for you? Or what do you see as these distinctions? Well, I, I would take the supernatural thing a step further in that episode. I mean, I, it's the only episode of supernatural I've ever watched. So keep that in mind. But when they're talking about Wincest, um, there is a mocking aspect, but it's like it's a it's a very light mocking and b there's almost like a especially in that sort of stirring monologue that that uh, one of them is giving when they're talking about making that production as freaky as you want to make it um uh, make it as slashy as you want or whatever it is the exact dialogue is 
there is sort of a tacit endorsement of it's your imagination. Do with it whatever the heck you want. If you want to make our two brother characters get freaky, it's your brain. It's, you know, hear the fans, do whatever you want. There's no real sense of condemnation there, which is uh, more progressive than I think any other show will probably ever get. Yeah, and Supernatural's been able to do that, I think, because, A, it's, I mean, 200 episodes is a milestone that you don't reach without having a fan audience. Um, and B, uh, they they have something like 15 conventions a year um, where they talk to the fans. Um, and at first, they would go to these conventions and they were always very shocked at the fandom, um, which is very passionate and, and very, very female um, and very uh, engaged in in the show in, in ways that I think surprised them. Um, but over the years, as they've talked to more and more fans and as they've heard from more and more fans, they've kind of seen, I, I, I think, and, and I'm really kind of touched by this, they've seen how fans have been changed by the show and they want to kind of honor that. Um, and, and I think you can see that because when Supernatural started in, I think it was season four, they started uh, depicting fans in in episodes like they went to a fan convention and they met like this um woman who had tattoos of uh Sam and Dean and um they they Becky was like the big fan um who was um Mary Sam uh, who's who's married to Sam well we like to not talk about that episode but um, uh but for the most part was a very positive representation um although people argue about that um but I think as as they've as as the supernatural team has kind of observed fans and talked to fans and read fan material like read fan fiction, but also read like fan fact, like what is what factual things are fans writing about? Um, they've come to respect fans more, and and that I think you're absolutely right, Simon. That that's that's very unusual. You don't see that in a lot of um, a lot of television. You don't see that kind of level of communication between the producers and the audience. And I mean, obviously I don't have a, this is just speculation, but it seems to me that a lot of shows may not have enough because there isn't that level of communication and, and dialogue like you get at a convention um, with other shows. I don't know how many other shows real have as maybe as much respect for their audiences, uh, understanding of the characters <laughs> and uh, understanding of the world and, you know, the, the levels of, you know, how much you can throw out there for, you know, as subtext or as um, continuity for the fans without having to be commented on and just know that, that if they're looking for it, they're going to get it. And that's certainly yeah. something you see with a lot of genre shows. It's something you see with, um, with, with Supernaturally, you see it with Doctor Who, you see it with Buffy, you see it with um, The X-Files, you see it with these other shows. And um, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Are there other, sh- are there other non-genre shows you guys can think of that, fall into this category or is it mostly because I immediately mm-hmm. go to those genre examples, but there's got to be other non-genre examples. Well, when you, when you asked me to, to come on, I started thinking about it because we had talked about this over email and I started trying to think about other shows that might have, have done this. And what occurred to me beyond the big bang theory, right? Which um, I, I don't think is a particularly positive representation of fans. Um, it kind of goes back to that get a life, um, idea, but, um, almost every kind of procedural, especially on CBS 
has always had that episode where they go to the fan convention or they like and there's like a serial killer who's killing Star Trek fans or 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 usually the serial killer is a Star Trek fan. Right. Um, right. I think Bones did that recently. They went to a convention. Um, Castle's done it a bunch. Castle's done it. Um, I think CSI did a famous one with furries um, mm. and furry fandom. And 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 so you and and the difference I think there is that those are shows geared towards a mass audience. Um, you know, something like Bones, which also is having its 200th episode this year. Bones has been on the air as long as Supernatural, and probably has three times the audience. Um, but they're not a fan audience in the same way that Supernatural has a fan audience. Um, they're an audience of viewers who probably like the show a lot, might even call themselves fans, but they don't go to Bones fan conventions. You don't find Bones and Brennan action figures. Um, you don't see a huge amount of Bones fan fiction being written. They're not cosplaying as Hodgins. <laughs> they're not cosplaying as Hodgins. Um, there's, there's just less um, emotional investment in a show that is less uh, concerned with continuity and um, – uh, um, generating kind of original ideas. Now, I love Bones. It's it's great, but it's it's a procedural. And Supernatural aims, I think, to be different. And I think that that's why it also depicts its fans differently, if that makes sense. Just to throw one more example in there, uh, Bob's Burgers and its Brony episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, br- and Bronies have become quite... Um, quite famous probably more famous than they probably thought they were going to be there were like documentaries about brownies and mm-hmm. um, uh show like as you say bob's burgers has done stuff but you see um i even see those little funko figures of the dr hooves from my little pony um like there's been this kind of mass acceptance of brownies as being like part of the fandom which is great yeah when that first started you know people started hearing about bronies it just was sort of hilarious to as a fan someone who's been a fan of of especially genre material since my entire life it was sort of hilarious to watch people go oh men watch my little pony mm-hmm. you, you can watch that if you don't have a vagina uh <laughs> is just it was just sort of hilarious because there's this sort of um and, and of course it's it's more and more mainstream now it's more and more understood now but for growing up there's sort of sort of um understanding that if you were watching some of these programs, it meant that you lived in your parents' basement and you didn't have a day job and you were antisocial. And as fans have become the showrunners, like you said, Paul, uh, that some of that has gone away. And so when, when it, when those stereotypes do reemerge, it is all the more confusing to me, uh, because you'd think that at this point, everybody would understand the, um, you know that one can like a, a have a really passionate following of a series or a movie or you know look at something like the film two uh, room two thirty seven mm-hmm. yeah the the um shining movie right yeah yes. and, and and still be a well rounded individual i I just wanted to to add in like as much as this warming of the relationship between creatives and fans warms the cockles of my heart uh I am concerned, and this isn't so much about depiction as the relationship in general. Hopefully it's not too off track. I am concerned about fans taking the steering wheel a little bit too much to the degree that creatives become too concerned about not pissing them off. Because to me, like some of the great moments in film and television come with creatives 
going against the wishes of fandom or going against, you know, giving them what they uh, what they don't know they want or, you know, as Joss Whedon would say, what they need rather than what they want. And, you know, t making those major decisions, killing someone off or taking a plot in a direction that people don't like. I think that sometimes uh, fan feedback can be amazing, like especially especially if, cre if creators are responsive, like what's happened with The Good Wife and their willingness to say, oh, this character is clearly not working. Fans hate this character. Let's get rid of them immediately uh, rather than, you know, t taking another six or eight episodes to do it. Uh, there's lots of examples like that. On the other hand, uh, a combative relationship can also be very fruitful, like we saw in The Sopranos with David Chase saying people are idolizing Tony and it is the worst. It makes me angry. And so I need to get deeper and darker and stranger. And then, of course, there's a finale, which is a whole other thing. So I, I feel like sometimes, you know, that combativeness can be a little bit noxious, like we've seen with uh, Sorkin. But I think often it can create uh, more interesting results than if people are just trying to please the fans. Yeah, um, I think uh, uh, you're, you're right that, um, you know, fandom... There's a there's a getting back to Doctor Who fandom. Um, there's a famous passage in a book that calls them the fandom menace um, <laughs> because they became so concerned with um, continuity and um, quality and and whether or not the show was going in the direction that they wanted that in a lot of ways they they kind of killed it um, in the 80s. Um, I think today um, fans are smarter. Then I, I, sh I shouldn't say they're smarter. Fans were perfectly smart in, in the old days. <laughs> fans fans know more about the media industry today. Um, there's kind of a more uh, common knowledge about how television works, how the economics of television works. It's 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 not unusual for you know people know that reality TV is fake, right? Like it's not a shock anymore. Um, and so I think I think fans trust more than maybe they would have in the past. Um, I don't, I don't have kind of evidence to back this up particularly, but I, I, it, it just in thinking of those examples that you mentioned, like, um, Joss Whedon killing off characters, we, Joss Whedon has such a following that people would trust him, like, to do what he wants to do. And what's been interesting is watching Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which has the Joss Whedon stamp, but is not quite a Whedon show because it's also got the Marvel stamp on it. And those two things don't always work very – they don't play well together. Um, and like Joss Whedon is not going to kill off um, a major character from Marvel's Avengers, right? <laughs> because that's like a, a huge franchise. So um, so there's there's this issue of trust that fans have to build up with their creator, which I think Whedon has. Um but maybe less tried and true uh, um, uh, auteurs, maybe uh, showrunners like Moffat, to get back to Moffat, perhaps doesn't have the trust of everyone because they don't agree with his vision. Yeah. Well, and even just having that dialogue, being open to that dialogue, um, mm -hmm. it's something, and it, it just made me think of the Supernatural fan fiction episode where the uh, Dean says something about seeing how you see the show or the books of the world, you know, supernatural right, right. tells me more about how I see it. And so having an understanding of what your fan base is seeing in your, in your art is, you know, so maybe 
there's always going to be fringes that are you're like, uh, that's no, 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 that's not there. But if enough percentage of your fan base of the people who are watching say no Game of Thrones, that was not a consensual sex scene. Uh, yeah. Maybe you should look <laughs> have that affect your storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so so to have uh, a, I absolutely agree, Simon, the notion of um, I, having fans dictate content or um, something like the Veronica Mars movie, which I enjoyed as what felt like fan fiction, uh, but did not feel, it didn't feel like, it was trying to check off so many boxes to make fans happy that it prioritized, seemed to me, it prioritized that over being a good you know, piece of storytelling. Um, that That is certainly a concern, but I think it's also nice to have the other side where you get um, more interaction and, you know, like you said, Simon, the Kings writing off Kalinda's husband or some of these other things where they're clearly not working. What, what is intended in the writer's room and in production meetings is not coming through in the finished product. Um, so I think, and, and as in all things, uh, a balance there is a little bit in the middle is what, what works out for the best. Uh, before we finish uh, off here, I do want to ask what uh, everybody to pick their, their favorite TV fan. Oh man. There's a lot of choices. A lot of choices you could go with. Uh, this might be cheating, but I always thought of the Lone Gunman as being a reflection of fandom. I mean, I know that oh, definitely. All, they also they represent some other stuff as well, but they're a really early example, uh, but also a very affectionate one uh, that I think is. I mean, they got their own bloody series for God's sake. This is really tough. Um, I I like. Um, I guess my current favorite fan is Abed from Community. Um, because he loves Inspector Spacetime with the same kind of passion that I love Doctor Who. So I see, <laughs> I see myself in him. Um, um, yeah, I'll, I'll go with Abed. Uh, the one that we haven't mentioned yet that we can't end the segment without mentioning is Jeffrey Albertson, also known as the comic book guy, comic shop guy. Oh, yes. From The Simpsons. Uh, but for me, when I was pondering this, uh, the one that came up, uh, was Andrew uh, from the from Buffy? Buffy, oh Andrew, I love Andrew so much. He's pretty, especially the way that character gets uh, becomes evolved over the the sixth, seventh season, and then his appearance in season five in Angel, um, and plays with these different expectations. Um, that I, I really enjoyed that arc for the character, and Tom Link is a lot of fun in the role. Uh, earlier in the series, you could throw Jonathan into that conversation as well, but um, that's what I'm going to go with for now. Uh, do we have Good any choice. final thoughts? on this topic of, you know, depictions of fans on TV and f- television's relationship with fandom? Well, one one thing that I um, that you sparked in me, Kate, was this idea that um, fans fans also are important to point when to point out to, to kind of media creators when they've screwed up. And the Game of Thrones example is perfect. Um, where I don't think anyone on the team the the Game of Thrones team thought that that was going to be controversial. They didn't, or they thought it was going to be controversial, but not for for the incest, not for the kind of rape. So having fans point that out to them is really important, um, and I think that that's an important job for fans to do is to keep pointing stuff like that out, keep pointing out where they get it wrong, because that's the only way that they're going to learn. Hmm. I just want to I just want to throw out there. Are there any other examples than the one I'm about to throw out of showrunners who are fanboys of an existing series writing for another existing series while they're both running? Because I was just thinking about uh, Benioff and Weiss writing for It's Always Sunny. Uh, that's true. We had, um, 
I know there was a Himium and CSI writers room switch, but I don't know if those are those aren't the same kind of situation. Did that actually happen? Because that's actually kind of cool. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the the How I Met Your Mother episode where um where Ted uh, details. Uh, the progression of a fight between, I think it was uh, Lily and Marshall, based on the state of the apartment when he returns <laughs> to it. Uh, and that was written by the CSI writers. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I don't know. There certainly are, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of love recently on shows for other shows. So yeah. mentioning of, you know, Jane the Virgin had a shout out to Veronica Mars recently. We had uh, the Americans, the showrunner of the Americans show up as the talking head on the show within the show on Good Wife. There's been a lot of, you know, or, or there's an Orphan Black reference in the Supernatural 200th mm-hmm. episode. There's been yeah. a lot more of that recently as well. And actually, Good Wife is the first show that I can think of that's really folded in the general culture of sort of mainstream TV obsession as a rolling joke or plot point with the whole darkness at noon thing. Um, you know, the, 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 the whole concept of binge watching has really come into play in that show in a way I haven't seen no- anyone else really notice, at least, except for a, a, the, a passing reference on some comedies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's plenty more um, to think about with this topic. Um, certainly I know I'm going to immediately, we'll finish recording and I'll think of 10 other people I should have referenced. I know that's the trouble, isn't it? It always <laughs> happens. We'll have to do a part two. Certainly. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for coming on. Where can my our pleasure. listeners find you and your work online? Uh, well, my my uh, work is on the um, my DePaul website, and you can just Google Paul Booth DePaul um, and, and find me. If you Google just Paul Booth, you end up with a very famous tattoo artist, and that is not me. Um, <laughs> yeah, we but, didn't mention it at the top, but you are a professor. Or, 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 I am a, I'm a professor at DePaul University in Chicago. And, um, and so my, my stuff is available online and, um, by, I have books at Amazon if you're interested. And, uh, I didn't know if you wanted, do you want to mention the thing you're doing in May? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, thank you. Um, I run a pop culture, uh, kind of colloquium in, uh, May, um, and this year is focused on Supernatural. Um, so I'm finalizing the guest list now. Um, so I can't say anything, but it's super exciting um, <laughs> if it comes through. Um, but it's kind of a, a combination of fan convention and scholarly conference uh, where we have fans and academics speaking to each other, which very rarely happens, um, and kind of having thoughtful debates and discussions um, and um There'll be screenings and introductions. It's always a fun time. Um, and so that'll be May 9th at DePaul University in sunny downtown Chicago. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Can we – I have to bring up one last thing before we wrap up really quickly. <laughs> I, can't be, I can't believe we didn't get to it. Cult. Oh, God. <laughs> All about – oh. get to that. <sighs> I watched you know, that for too many weeks, man. The trouble with Cult, besides the fact the first couple Wait, episodes which? were promising – uh, is Rockney O'Bannon did it, and yep. Rockney O'Bannon is so good in Farscape. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep, <laughs> yep, that's exactly what I was saying. I was like, this pilot is either the show's going to be terrible or it's going to be fascinating. Those are the <laughs> options, and I I held up for fascinating way too long. Uh, but yeah, that's an excellent point, Simon. <laughs> 
Yeah. Curtis Thanks is now called. Thanks for bringing that memory back up. Yep, it's back. We like Jessica Lucas in Life as You Know It, right? That's what I'll hold on to. Okay. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, again, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. <laughs> And with that, we'll move on to the comedies. Of, you caught up this week with Benched, Shark Actually. I'm assuming this is a play on the the new Christmas classic, Love Actually. You know what? This is not a movie podcast, but I feel like at some point you and I should record a Love Actually podcast because I feel like that would be really entertaining. Yeah, I, uh, I feel like it'd be lots of, you know, I feel like it would be our Battle of the Lake House for the film spotting fans out there. Uh, yes, I, 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 I don't listen to film spotting because I don't listen to other people's podcasts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I just don't. I, as a rule, sometimes I do, but as a rule, I don't because uh, I'm always worried about accidentally lifting ideas. That's cause that's how my brain works. Uh, but I have heard of that. Because I, you know, cultural osmosis. Anyway, um, ha- side note, I've never actually seen Love Actually. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wanted to check in on Benched, whoop, whoop, because...